Welcome to Rationalist, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the rapturous Eddie Matthews. How you doing today, Eddie? Pretty good. Back again. <laughs> We're always back. People try to keep us away. They just can't stop us. We keep coming back. You can't stop genius. That's what Kanye West uh, keeps trying to tell the world. I mean, they've tried. They keep trying to censor us on here. We keep, you know, bringing out our lawyers. Oh! Not in America. Not in America, you don't. (laughs) Do not get me started on cancel culture. Do not get me started on cancel culture. It is a problem in this country. It's the biggest problem in this country. Everything else is secondary. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to be censored. Dude, the other day, I was trying to get on a plane, and they emailed me, and they're like, hey, your flight's been canceled. And I was like, this is it. This is what they've been talking about. This, this is the You'll end never of believe this. You'll never believe this. I tried to put a pizza in the oven last night. I go and I look at my oven settings and there's a cancel button. A whole cancel button on my oven. I'm like, hey, what what like leftist libtard is now manufacturing ovens and installing them in apartments? They, they control the means of production. They Mark tried to warn us about this. They control the media? They control the means of production? They control the schools. They control the universities. I mean, it seems like we're the on to one something. thing they don't control <laughs> is the churches. Well, it seems like that's going to have to be our next episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, could this perhaps, Eddie, bringing this into today's topic, be a sign of civilizational downfall, or? Is this uh, a sign that we've ascended to another uh, plane, a continued linear acceleration of modern society? Right. Are we at the end of history? Is history cyclical? That's our topic today. And you can (laughs) tell who chose it. (laughs) Fucking nerd (laughs) co-host. I think I picked this one specifically now because of all the, the stuff going on in Ukraine. I feel like a lot of these kind of existential questions have come back into the news, obviously for terrible reasons. Um, And we don't have as much to say about that because we're not experts on the Ukraine crisis, but you can go back and listen to our other uh, episode where we did actually have an expert on, which was great. Um, But I think some of the tangential questions I can speak more to. um, And so I think that's, that's what we're going to do today. And if you think that's too big of a topic, you're probably right. And this is going to be all over the place. So buckle up. Buckle up, pansies. Um, so have you read the Francis Fukuyama book, uh, The End of History and the Last Man? I have read sections of it. Right. I have not, but we can kind of get into, so I can't speak too much on it, but we can talk about the premise because it was such an influential book, but obviously not my field. Is it, was it? Did it make a huge splash uh, in your field in the early 90s? Or is it kind of like uh, looked down upon and kind of condescended to in your field now or somewhere in between? I would say in the... Okay, so I would say it's one of the most caricatured books that exists in political science. Just the idea. Most people that talk about Francis Fukuyama's quote, The End of History and the book, have not read it and just make sort of the false claim that he was saying this is it we've reached the pinnacle sit back and relax Um, in reference to the the end of the cold war democracy having no ideological rival civilization being in a great place right so give give like the i mean you touched on it there but give like the two sentence premise really quick of that yeah i mean it's it's pretty much the idea that all of mostly kind of uh, organized human history has led to this point of the early 2000s where kind of inclusive democracy, the capitalist system is the most representative. We're becoming more inclusive, including people. It's, it's more, it's about the liberal institutions um, and essentially looking and saying, okay, there isn't really a way to be more expressive and to have a more open included society than the systems we have now 
Um, so there is no more room for systemic and institutional evolution is the kind of caricatured idea. Right. Yeah. Um, you're right. It just, uh, yeah, again, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I shouldn't even comment on his book um, in particular, but I'll just talk about that idea in general because it kind of, to my understanding, has its um, precedence in Thomas More and Hegel and uh, Marx and such. Uh, this idea that, uh, and that was kind of this is kind of the modernist idea, right? Where it's like pre World War One, technology is advancing. We're coming out of the Industrial Revolution. There's uh, major legislation passed to protect workers for the first time. Uh, you know, standards of living are increasing. Sanitation's improving. People are like, "We did it, guys! This is great." You know, yeah. thinking that 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 we had accomplished the human experiment. Human experiment. I feel like a lot of that. Is it fair to say that this end of history idea has uh, some roots in modernism too? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it, the reason I wanted to do this topic, especially with you, is because the idea of kind of history and the philosophy of you know civilization is is somewhat you know a political question if you talk about existential risks and things, but it's more a philosophical kind of literary question. And I think the arena in which it's been most adequately or in- interestingly addressed has been in literature and kind of great works about what it means to be human and what civilization actually is. Um, And I think Fukuyama, I think the problem people have, or the problem people have trying to use the end of history as a concept is that they take what Fukuyama is essentially saying, which is that, yes, we have a good system. We, We need to, you know, work for the system. Our main issues will probably not be ideological, but they'll be you know, economic in these other realms. Um, and they try to transpose that to make it seem like he was saying everything's good, we can sit back and relax, which is not really what he was saying. And he, he it's actually a fairly pessimistic take saying like, this is a, a shame that we've reached this point where all we can do is kind of this technocratic um, examination or technocratic um like basically civilization is not going to have these societal monumental conflicts in terms of ideologies. It's only going to be dealing with technical problems that require less emotion. Um, And so it's a bit different, I think, but I think the concept lives on outside of Fukuyama, like you said, the idea that democracy and the idea that modern history has come to an end. You can see this in some of Steven Pinker's work, uh, kind of like, all his work on how violence has declined and we're in the most peaceful uh, time uh, in human history. Human progress. I think yeah. human progress is like an organization that tracks like uh-huh. data showing, you know, to be fair to them, it seems like their data is valid. But this idea that like, we're going in the right direction, guys. Yeah, and so we can talk about that. So that do you think we're going in the right direction? I, I mean, the, I guess the first, the original prompting question was basically, is, is history linear or cyclical? So I would be surprised if your take was, Yes, everything's going to be good forever. There's no chance of societal downfall or backsliding. Um, but I do think some people do make that claim. Well, I think it's probably the minority. I guess I just don't understand. That claim to me falls apart pretty quickly. The idea that, I guess, the idea that it would be linear, that history is not cyclical, that we don't repeat our past mistakes, that we learn from history and, and improve upon it. That seems naive to me. I think the question is, is it blips on a upward trajectory towards some sort of intergalactic human civilization? Or, <laughs> I mean, I think that's the end point. Are you a Mormon? I think that the end point for a lot of people, especially in like the rationalist communities, is essentially like, look, we're going to keep growing. Our technology is going to be so... If you kept technological gains at the pace that they're, they have been for the past 200 years, within the next like 500 years, you would have technology so advanced that you could essentially manipulate time. Like that's There are plenty of writings about how 
unsustainable current rates of technological process process are or progress are. And so I think a lot of people see that as the natural endpoint is that we're going to get to some point of, you know, interstellar sustainability where humans have grown beyond our planet, but are able to use technology to basically manage all of our problems and live in some sort of stasis. Um, the, yeah, there's a quote, I believe it's, I read that it was like, it's, I think it's been attributed to uh, Zizek and Frederick Jameson to like Marxist scholars. Um, and it's like a fascinating quote where, where they said, if it is attributed to them, one or the other, um, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah. And I find that fascinating um, in the sense that right now, what I see in Silicon Valley and in, you know, Facebook uh, converting to meta and then starting a metaverse, call back to a few episodes ago, <laughs> listeners, if you want to learn more about that. Um, with no regulation, with no uh, checks and balances, with no repercussions for all of the un, uh, injustices that Facebook's perpetuated, right? Um, it's it's easy, I think, for me to see the merit of that, you know, Zizek slash Jameson quote, um, because we continually especially in america seem to sacrifice the long-term ethical moral good for the short-term uh capital gains you know i'm not sure they're incompatible i'm probably more optimistic on that i think it's more of a philosophical question of like what it's hard to imagine a utopia that everyone can agree upon and i think that's where some of the critiques of the end of history are rather astute is, is essentially what do you think of when you th like if you picture our world now and you're like what are the major problems are they you know is it a continuation of what we have but improved like is it a similar society to what we have now but poverty is you know less common and you know politicians are less corrupt or is it something radically different where you know the fundamental institutions and the way we organize as a human species is different no, uh, I would say the former. Um, okay. So I guess it's like a fusion, I would say, between history being linear with incremental improvements and it being cyclical. Because I, I guess I ascribe to, um, I read this great interview with Carlos Fuentes, who is, uh, he was a famous uh, Mexican author, uh, you know, literary fiction writer. Uh, he died about 10 years ago, I believe, but, you know, extremely prominent in his day and uh he did an interview that i read and he just made a really great point about what he perceived as like change happening in america and he's like you americans are really good at incremental change um and i think he was kind of commenting on a uh, civil rights movement and i think that was a big part of martin luther king's philosophy too in, in the sense of like the way forward is incremental change through nonviolent resistance um, rather than kind of a big cultural revolution that's going to reshape this country dramatically in the span of a couple of years. Um, and so it kind of, that's maybe that's an interesting segue to that Martin Luther King quote about the um, arc of uh, the universe is long, but it bends toward justice, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Is that the quote? I think I believe yeah. it's a quote yeah. it, or it's, it's a, an approximation of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's like, <laughs> not to take this metaphor too far, but does the arc of history bend down and then back up and then down and then back up? Do you know what I'm saying? I or is it what, like one continual? I think what, what Fukuyama is saying is basically do, are we, have we reached the point where we understand collectively what justice is? I think that's more, Fukuyama's point is that he's saying, look, I can't imagine another value system overtaking this kind of individualistic support for individual rights and collective goods in a way that will rival what we've organized now. So I think if, if the argument is 
we're going to make incremental improvements within the system, I would say that's, that does support sort of what Fukuyama say, was saying. He wasn't saying it was perfect. He was saying the way we've set things up is as well as I can put together, you know, the best form of justice and organization. And so you can argue within that framework, you know, towards those end goals, are there ups and downs, but are we eventually going to reach it? Or you can say those end goals are not even the ones that will be seen as the end goals in 300 years. Uh, as far as the latter hypothesis, like I don't even know what the utility would be in debating that in a sense, because it would there's so many unknown factors of AI and climate change and all these things that could throw a huge wrench into how we think about the world in 2022 you know uh, i mean do you have a hypothesis on that i mean i think it's it's difficult to theorize for that exact reason right We're so why did you tell me before this podcast started you know exactly what the world's <laughs> going to be like in 2100 <laughs> well i just want to get this framing out of the way so that we can focus on within system explanations for whether we're going in arctic because there's this whole other field that's worried about and I think you brought up AI. I think that's the one that gets brought up the most because of the, the conceptions of what some form of artificial life might have about what is important in the universe might be entirely discordant to what we believe now. Um, and it's inherently impossible for us to come up with some sort of, uh, you know, analogous theory for what that might be. But I think we, yeah. we needed to put it out there before we come back to, you know, in system or in in our you know theoretical institutional frameworks what things right. look like yeah well i think to to go back to your original question if i may for a second and answer that from maybe like a literary perspective yeah um if i'm you know i'm looking at my bookshelf shelf right now and i'm like looking at some of the great works of literature you know dostoevsky and uh there's this book. Oh, you got George... my thesis up there? You got my thesis on, on your show? <laughs> I have Morgan's Wax, uh, Morgan, Morgan Wax LSE Master's Thesis, <laughs> printed and bound, hardback. Um, right next to Moby Dick and uh, right next Blood to Meridian. Blood Meridian, yeah. So George Saunders is an American short story writer, and he wrote this kind of book of commentary on this these seven russian short stories you know from turgenev and um chekhov and uh Gogol and uh, one other uh, tolstoy <laughs> i should believe that tolstoy um but he wrote this book of common and it's just so brilliant and can transcend it and you know you get to read the russian short story and you get to just saunders commentary on it and you know the brothers karamazov is one of my favorite books ever if not my favorite book my point being here is that i don't speak russian uh, I'm reading the English translations of these books. These books were written, written in the late 1800s, and yet they feel as alive and as relevant and as human in this year in this American society as they did in the you know kind of you know chaos of the Russian society that they were you know the serfs had just been liberated right so there was basically slavery until you know that Dostoevsky lived through and was writing. And yet, so, you know, a drastically different society in a lot of ways, but the human experience as conveyed in fictional form through these literary geniuses, there's something consistent to that that is transcendent and seems to pervade every culture because, you know, Dostoevsky is one of Murakami's favorite uh, writers and Murakami is a, you know, Japanese writer, probably next in line for the Nobel Prize, right? So it's resonating in Japanese culture in the same way it's representing here. So all that to say, my point being, I do think there's definitely something cyclical about the human experience and this kind of rise and fall, the, you know, kind of three act story structure of inciting incident, rising action and climax and falling action. And then it just kind of repeats, right? And that's just pretty much every great story has that structure. And so why is that and why does do these great stories and the great myths and the biblical stories why do they still captivate people um there's got to be something cyclical like undergirding all that and so it would 
lead me to believe that the human experience fundamentally doesn't change too much, but the structures that we put around it might like tend to lead us, like tend to tamp down our worst impulses and maybe hopefully tend to like promote some of our better impulses. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a good point. I, I, I think that much of at least written history seems to suggest that there's central driving features of pretty much all people all over that have at least some common values of justice and morality and, you know, liberty and freedom and those sorts of things. Um, They can be constrained and accentuated depending on the social circumstance, but they seem to exist pretty much all over in some degree or another. Yeah. So I guess, and I don't know, maybe this has nothing to do with the like history is linear argument, but I guess I don't really feel like, I don't know. I, 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 in no way could take off the table that there's not going to be another major political revolution. I mean, because I feel like the end of history kind of implies that the American empire experiment is just going to persist because of what we talked about, this kind of technocratic society, or that it'll be kind of like a multinational, you know, kind of organizational government that just promotes the better well-being of like a range of citizens like a pan-europe state and i just don't uh i don't know i i would hesitate to be that confident in the liberal democratic kind of uh process it it doesn't it doesn't seem to be as solid and as that you know yeah, so to be fair to um, to Fukuyama, I think he's he's basically saying the exact, I know the exact opposite, but he's basically saying warning against becoming complacent. He's basically saying people need some sort of ideological bend to hold on to. And if this current system becomes too dominant, people will eventually resort to something else just because it's something else, because people need some sort of ideological sustenance. Um, and so I think that's a good segue into kind of within system change. So you were seeing kind of a resurgent battle of authoritarianism and capitalism with China's rise and, and especially with Russia's uh, recent invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, people have, I, I think it's certainly less ideological than the Cold War. There really isn't an ideology to the types of authoritarianism we see in the world today, at least not a cogent one as as much as there was during the cold war um but that doesn't I feel like mean, it's almost like yeah. i feel like it's almost like nostalgia would be the the ideology even more than communism or you know does that make sense like in what sense like in in russia or like like putin, like, like putin like putin yeah. being nostalgic for the soviet union and yi jinping being nostalgic for I don't know. I don't know enough about China. I guess Mao's the, no, I mean, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to venture, I guess. I I know so little about Chinese history. Um, The way I see it is nostalgia certainly plays a role, but it's more of a tool for autocratic survival. I mean, the, the thing that separates autocracies from, I mean, there are lots of things, but the thing that primarily motivates autocracy in, in the, you know, its most essential form is just regime survival, right? You pretty much all of our models are based on, you know, what is the leader doing or the party doing to ensure that they aren't kicked out of power and thus lose access to their wealth and goods, um, which isn't necessarily ideologically driven. You can frame that around ideologies like nostalgia to try to, or nationalism, or all these other things to try to improve your chances and to limit revolution and riots and these sorts of things but that not is not usually taken as the end goal right yeah i can see that yeah so i mean i think one of the so if we're talking about you know what's switch over to kind of the system in and of itself do you think that by the year 20 i think i gave you the year 2100 
that most countries will be what we would recognize today as democracies? Um, did you say most countries? Yeah, most countries. So like similar um, to today, most countries... Right, right, right. Are, are, so it's like, do you think the system in terms of... So I'll ask both things at the same time. Yeah, sure. Do you think... What do you think economically, politically, and socially... Do you imagine the world will look pretty similar, but with you know more advanced technologies, but social and political and economic relationships and institutions will be fairly similar to what they are now? Or do you expect one of those things to kind of outpace the others or change in some dra- dramatic way? And this doesn't so, necessarily need to be global. You can take it. Yeah, down and no, say, no, we know no. the U.S. case best. So if you, that's easier. I think I think that yes, twenty one hundred is probably not going to look terribly dissimilar to what it is now. What you and I are going to be like one hundred and twenty five. Yeah, we'll still be doing this podcast. You know, we'll be like uh, yeah. <laughs> probably at least twice a week by then um i don't anticipate that it will be terribly dissimilar but i also think that like in the history of civilization liberal democracy is still really young so even in 2100 it's still being the like young ish early phases of it and could potentially beyond 2100 fall apart and, you know, reform and something drastic to happen afterward, you know? I just don't think it's, well, I, I don't anticipate for that all to crumble in, you know, 80 years. Yeah. What I do mean, you think? I think that, so speaking specifically of modern capitalist democracy, I think when we look back at institution not institution but if we look back at civilizations that have kind of risen and fallen um you can think of you know lots of the dynasties in china you can think of rome you can think of some of the places in africa the mayans aztecs whoever you want to think of the ones that the lakers lasted, the lakers yes the, the boston celtics in the 60s uh the ones that have lasted the longest are typically those that rely on some form of stasis or equilibrium right it's much easier to preserve a system than it is to preserve institutions as the system and the technology changes, right? Yeah, it's the idea of like, as Rome expanded, they became more tolerant of the conquered peoples and letting them have their own religions and just making sure that they paid taxes and supplied soldiers when they need them and, you know, the basics. Sure, I mean, I don't even know, not necessarily about like expansion, and you could make some sort of diversity argument, but I think it's it's more about technology. Um, let's say the aqueduct. It's more about so in, in a lot of there's tons of examples throughout history where rulers have essentially destroyed new technology so that it doesn't upend kind of social systems, right? There are yeah. reasons that you know peasants and the feudal system existed for a very long time. It's because nothing really happened. It was just people sustaining life as it was. People weren't expecting their kids to be richer than they were. They were just expecting their kids to do exactly what they did in the same place sure. at the same, you know, the same area of England for the next 500 years. Yeah. While it didn't last forever, those types of systems tend to last for a pretty long time because you really have to have dramatic kind of cataclysmic change for something to rupture the fabric of something so ingrained right with capitalist democracy which is kind of based on growth that is dynamic you're constantly developing new technologies that have the potential to reshape how society the economy political systems are organized which taken in a vacuum you would think would be a much more unstable system over time and that's why within a system like this the values and the norms are so important to sustaining it because they're the glue that sort of allow society to adapt to whatever the new technology is something like i think social media would be the most obvious example our political systems were designed in a way that did not in any way anticipate being able to communicate instantly thousands of miles apart. Yeah. It just makes me, (laughs) it makes me think of the, I think it was the first time, I don't know. He's maybe he's been to Congress like three times now, but they brought Zuckerberg 
before Congress one time for a hearing. Um, and it's just like some senator, you know, just r ripped into him about this huge, you know, glaring, egregious thing that Facebook let happen. I can't remember what example. There are a proliferation of examples they could have chosen. And Mark Zuckerberg goes, I realize that, Senator, and we are deeply sorry. And we have made that clear. It's just like, you're sorry? <laughs> just the idea that um, these guys inventing algorithms that are creating echo chambers from which we can't penetrate to communicate to each other and that that's eroding our liberal democracy that we deeply need to have these shared values in this country to preserve it. It's like, it's comical almost how, what it's I did, like this Harvard kid is the threat to that. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think it's a good example because in, in the very rare uh, case on this podcast, when I, I don't know if I'm standing up for Facebook, but I'm essentially saying they're not necessarily the problem. This instance is that that's exactly the thing that the system rewards, right? It's if we're, have to rely on the largesse of individual people to make moral decisions with companies, we're kind of screwed, right? We essentially yeah. baked into the system is the idea that we can survive individual people making selfish decisions that are not for the greater good of society. And we can try to impose some form of, you know, norms and we can try to sanction people socially or economically if they don't comply. But the system has this type of technological changed not just baked in but as the end goal of a lot of its output right right and i guess yeah i guess what's comical about it is that like the i don't know it's a difficult kind of push pull because you need the innovation so that the society doesn't stagnate to the kind of feudal lords serfs example for 500 years but the innovation can't eclipse so much that it can't in any way be regulated because then the society that it's supposed to exist within crumbles, right? And the, I think even separately, I don't even know if, like if there was an endpoint, let's say we everyone tripled their income and we spread out income more evenly. There's not no... Me. Uh -uh. <laughs> except for you. You're not coming for my income. <laughs> It, well, I tripled it first, so maybe that will uh, make it a little mm -hmm. easier. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, there isn't really a way built into the system where you could then stop and be like, all right, everyone, we're good here. Like, can we get off this train? That's not really how it works. It's going to you know, continue on somewhat indefinitely unless you have some sort of overriding of the system. And that doesn't necessarily – I mean, it sounds terrible because it's frightening and change is scary, but that doesn't necessarily need to be – bad the problem is that you people take technology to be i think less let I me mean, not fungible but more interchangeable than it is individual technologies have a lot more of like a lot larger impact on how we organize and how we see society and politics and economics than we'd like to think and certain technologies are more conducive to you know, happiness and equitable growth than other technologies, technologies that allow individual people to reap lots of the benefits and rewards without having to incorporate other people's knowledge and advice are more easily manipulated than other forms of technology. So I'm, I'm kind of getting off path here, but I'm basically making the argument that the system we're in is inherently unstable and relies a lot on values that we tend to take for granted that I think become more difficult to isolate when we aren't faced with a, like an ideological alternative. And that's what I, I wanted to get into was the alternative options that we kind of face in the world today. So I, I think I'm with you that I think the world, I mean, I don't really have any reason to go out on a limb and say that democracy won't be the most, you know, the dominant system by 2100. I would expect it to be far more direct. I think referenda have become more common lately and with technology, I think it becomes more difficult to say, why should, you know, why should an intermediary be voting on a policy in your district when I could just press yes on my phone and not have to worry about 
you know, political corruption. I can just vote for what I want. So I expect it to be more direct. Uh, we could talk about that sometime because that could also have negative consequences, definitely. Um, but I do think that there's a chance that, you know, authoritarianism could become more powerful. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk a bit about. And I know we're, we're joining on for a while, but I wanted to make a point about the authoritarian governments that exist today. So tying it back to, to Russia and China and some of these other countries. Um, in the 20th century, especially early 21st century, a lot of authoritarian governments were essentially just not very well governed, right? So we talked about it before, if your main goal is to stay in power, you don't really care about relational power unless you have some sort of uh, powerful rival that you feel can actually, you know, poses a threat. In the modern world where countries don't invade very often with very obvious um, exception being Russia at the current moment, people have typically seen internal threats as far greater than external threats. And if you see internal threats as greater than external threats, you're less worried about total growth and more worried about keeping relative growth against your enemies internally, if that makes sense. Yeah, and without uh, diverging from the line we're on, a quick example of that being in your wee house, right? Like the reason why all of these different African countries seem to just have a lot of military coups and regime changes and then repeat the same mistakes. I'm speaking in generalities here, but there seems to be a pattern. Is that fair to say? Yeah, in, cer in certain countries, it's certainly much more likely to have a coup if you've already had a coup. It's usually the main predictor, yeah. Yeah, so uh, that being the idea of like, oh, man, well, if I was the leader, I would never, I would never do that once I got into power. Well, it's like, well, you have to keep you have to like fend off all the people who want your top spot. So you have to like bribe them and then they have to bribe their people. And then like to even stay in power, you have to be corrupt in the system that, that, that that's as shaky as that, you know? Yeah, so absolutely. I'll let's say continue. So I just wanted to make the point that democracy's success has bred a stronger form of authoritarianism than I think we give credit for because I think we imagine authoritarianism as an ideology and as a form of governance to be similar to those poorly run authoritarian governments that were common in the late 20th century. And I don't think that's any longer the case. And so an example of this would be the spread of authoritarian elections, right? So most countries in the world today, almost all countries in the world today hold elections. About half of them are legitimate elections. And there's, you know, within that, there are more legitimate and less legitimate elections. But a lot of them are just complete scams. This didn't used to be the case. And it's essentially, you know, people have said, oh, it's to, you know, trick people into you know, these authoritarian governments thinking like, you know, the people actually have a choice. It can build legitimacy and these sorts of things. But I think what gets overlooked and not just in the case of elections, but in a lot of other areas is that institutions like elections actually serve a function. They allow the government to see what parts of the country are opposing their rule. They allow lower um, performing politicians to be voted out, even if their party remains in full power so that they can actually perform slightly better than they would if they were just completely authoritarian. The Chinese government lets people speak out against the government in certain ways so that they can hear complaints, which basically serves the same function as voting used to. Authoritarian governments essentially realize that democracy is a great sell. People really like the idea that they are in charge of deciding who is in charge of the country. And so to compete with that, they've had to improve their alternative systems, come up with alternative ways of selling their projects like nationalism, like ideologies and nostalgia. And essentially the, the authoritarian governments that have survived these waves and the, you know, quote unquote, end of history are those that are have made concerted efforts to become competitive against uh, you know, calls for democracy. Um, and I think that's something that gets overlooked. Um, and I, yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, but I also think it's, it's something that makes it so that I'm not as confident that uh, the world will look the same in 2100 as, uh, as I'd like to be. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that's an interesting idea. I never thought about the use of like rigged elections as just a me as just like another census almost, you know, as yeah. a means of just like data gathering. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, because none of these, I mean, these are still sophisticated. These authoritarian strongmen are still sophisticated people. Like, they know they're not going to change the human spirit of rebellion, right? So the idea of providing a contained venue for it is interesting and necessary, right, for them to have continue to have their stranglehold on power. You know, for for them to keep like the vast, at least the majority of the public on their side. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess. So, what does it? Do you think that? I mean, China kind of had to go the capitalistic route as well, right? To in order to sell their authoritarian regime. There's this weird kind of blend between communism and capitalism, I feel like, as an economy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a a great example, right? They they realized they couldn't compete with a centrally planned economy, right? And so they're trying their best to tap into capitalist growth and technological change without allowing that to shift the system underneath it. I mean, every, every point that I've made about how technology can shift systems and shifts the balance of power plays out if not the same more so in a place like china where you are trying to keep some sort of political stasis uh, but you are dealing with rapid technological growth a growing middle class more connected individuals and so that you know they're fighting back against that by trying to harness new technologies as quickly as possible and they have the most sophisticated you know censorship regime in human history uh, to do that, and it's still not perfect, and we'll see if they're able to keep that going. Um, but I don't see any reason why it's guaranteed that they will fail, which is the way that it was viewed. I think at the time, Fukuyama wrote his book. I think a lot more people are pessimistic that China will gradually democratize these days than they were 20 years ago. Dude, that's I mean, in a country that big. I feel like democratizing would be, uh, yeah, I'm not as optimistic as Fukuyama either. Um, yeah, I guess the only thing that makes me think about that I really feel like I have some context for is the uh, how this looks in America. And uh, that's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, just the idea, like I never i i'm representative of the people that was lulled into complacency by a stable democracy or a seemingly stable democracy right mm-hmm. so like i was of that populace that was just so stunned by 2016 that it took me like years to integrate that into my worldview you know i mean it does seem like when we look back in time on the 2015 through 2020, where we had an incredibly, uh, you know, transformative and not in a positive way election, a pandemic, economic downturn, uh, an invasion of another European country. I think we're going to see this as a somewhat crucial hinge point in in history, um, and we'll see well, living through it in the you know in this moment. I just think that. Um... I, I think I know you and I have talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it on the pod, but it's this idea that Trump isn't uh, Putin for lack of trying. Like it's not that he has some sort of like morals or values that prevent him from being a Putin. It's that he's just not as competent, and that he's in a stronger uh, checks and balance like system that is restricting his uh, authoritarian instincts, right? And so the fact that we have 70-ish million people who voted for him again, 
2020. And maybe even more people who will vote for him if he wins the nomination in 2024. That should be a really frightening thing in all of our minds as Americans for anybody thinking about this issue that we're talking about, right? This rise of authoritarianism in, in liberal democratic societies, right? Because... Yeah, I mean, to end on a, like a positive note, and you can say something after this, I think the, the thing that I would say is it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to backtrack into something worse. I think all, all that history points to is the, the idea that stasis and equilibria are short-lived. It could be that we're right on, you know, these, this is the turbulence before some sort of transcendence to a more equal, equitable system that employs technology to our benefit in a way that we haven't done in the past. Um, and I think that's what we need to be striving for. We need to be striving to improve our institutions as a way of combating this sort of social backsliding, not trying to keep everything the same as it is now. Yeah, totally. And I think that with new generations, I think that there will be more of an appetite for that. Um, I worry I, that with every new generation, you get you get the good with the bad, right? You get individuals with limitless, um, you know, tabula rasa to come up with systems that we could never have imagined or never thought possible. But you also get people who are less tethered to issues in the past that you know i think in europe you can see the difference between the europe and the united states where you see the horrors of world war one and world war two every day and you walk through things i think there's something to being tied to these atrocities that makes it less likely that you will repeat the same mistakes but maybe that's just pessimism i don't know i guess i just hope that you know gen z and i mean i hope that you know, as millennials come into power here in the next, I don't know, 10 to 20 years in, you know, Supreme Court and, you know, whatever branch of government. Um, I guess I should say like 10 to 40 years because no one retires anymore. <laughs> um, I would hope that with the younger generations, we're going to be fucking fed up with what we were given in this partisanship. Um, and obviously we've contributed that too but I feel like the seeds were sown before we had any real legitimate leadership or sway or you know our generation you know or had any voice in this so my only optimism comes from like a hope that we're just going to see and be uh, and reject this type of partisanship that led to a rise in authoritarianism in this country and other countries yeah well i hope though so. well i'll be backing your political campaign when you run for uh mayor of san diego oh my god dude um <laughs> no i follow our mayor on twitter and i see how many events he goes to <laughs> and i'm like, I like i like how that's the problem it's not like the the chaos or the vitriol expectations of socializing <laughs> and yeah work hours maybe you can be that. the first zoom politician you just hold on you hold your state of the union on zoom and people can phone in no in your, i hate <laughs> zoom be in your pjs <laughs> yeah no i um i mean i like having these type of conversations because i think they're helpful what I worry about, and, you know, we can end on this note, you know, after I get your insights on it, if you so wish, um, is like the universities should be having regular discourse and dialogue in like high level thinking about these type of questions and these kind of ethical and philosophical dilemmas. And, and uh, we should be involving students in that. And we should be trying to like break through to mainstream uh, media and culture with some of our scholarship and kind of like code switching depending on our audience but still like pushing these and, and like advocating for you know shared values right and wrestling with these big questions and i just don't see that much happening on universities um but i've only been exposed exposed to a few so i don't know if you've seen that more on yours yeah i mean there are certain uh 
spaces where I think you can get into these types of conversations. Um, obviously, this podcast is one of the bright, shiny examples. Uh, Number one, baby. Very phenomenal. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a clamoring for that. I think we're in a, in a particularly fraught place when it comes to open discussion about issues that aren't related specifically to, you know, polarized forms of politics or specific ideas within politics. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful on that front that new technologies will allow us to bridge groups and not just kind of funnel ourselves off and get into our own, our own head, uh, whether that's online or, or in person. Well, I hope that new technologies open up more leisure time so we'll have to work less and can devote more time to this type of discourse too. What I'm getting is that you really just don't want to work and you want to do the podcast full time. <laughs> I, yes. Dude, we're going to have to open a, pa- a, pa- a what is it, pa- a Patreon? <laughs> God, no. Dude, that would be the best if we just, if you like could just podcast like once a week and you like made a living off it. Think how good our podcast would be if your full job was just to like do research for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty great, but then I wouldn't, they wouldn't have chosen me <laughs> as, a, as a host. Um, I say they, like it's like we answered to people. No, I, I heard it's Joe Rogan. He has full control. He decides who gets in, oh, who doesn't. Yeah, so for our $5 and up supporters, um, you're going to get early access to episodes. You're going to get episodes that you don't. Like, I can't ever, well, I'll never say never, I guess. Any hoozle, um, thanks for joining us on this intellectual journey. I hope you were stimulated for the last hour. I hope you have all, uh, you will return and that with uh, <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna try to to go really deep, but I feel like it's the wrong vibe. So I, I think until next time, rational listeners, feel free to give us a shout, pitch some episode topics. We'll be here. Mm-hmm. Adios. <laughs>